you pray with me our prayer for illumination? God who is over us, God who is one of us, God who is, give us pure hearts that we may see you, humble hearts that we may hear you, hearts of love that we may serve you, hearts of faith that we may abide in your heart. Amen. Our scripture lesson is found in Acts chapter 9, the first 19 verses. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue of Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, who are you, Lord? He replied, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but get up and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he answered, here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight and at the house of Judas looking for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment he is praying and he's seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he, has, for he is an instrument whom I've chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on your way here has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and his sight was restored. Then he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Let's pray. Bless, O oh Lord, the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. When was it that you first felt God's love? 
knew that God had a claim on your life and needed to use you as a witness. When I was a little girl, I remember being very young in Sunday school and being taught to love God with my whole heart, more than my parents. And I remember from that day forward trying to figure out just how to do that. I remember being just a bit older, enough to know that young children were not supposed to be making the decision about the, uh, making a confession of faith and baptism. That's what Baptists do, you know? You, you wait until you know what you're doing. I was too young, but there's this altar call, and I feel like I gotta go, I gotta go, I gotta go, and I don't. And oh, how that day I remember feeling like I had disappointed my God. I remember the trays of communion being opened up and the smell of grape juice wafting back in the church and how those great big trays of crackers and grape juice would pass just nose level, knowing that I couldn't take it then also knowing that somehow one day it would be for me too. Got up into youth group. I'm a Methodist by then. And having my local pastor who served our two-point charge say, you know, with all the leadership things you're doing in youth group, maybe you ought to consider getting a license to preach. I knew I was too young for that. Then I'm going to college. I'm going to nursing school. It was all settled, and I'm at home one day and decide with a, I've got this nasty cold, so I might as well clean out this dresser drawer of college material. And I open up, and there's an envelope in there from Greensboro College. Greensboro's like Otterbein and Ohio Wesleyan and Ohio Wesleyan. The Methodist school and so I open it up and in it is a four-year leadership scholarship for Methodist kids there are three of us in college at one time and the folks have already said get some help if you can so yeah I look at this that scholarship says the interviews are the next day. So I call them up and I say, can I interview for this scholarship? And they said, have you applied to be a student? I said, no. Can I try? They let me come. And I came home from that with a four-year scholarship to a place with no nursing school. But having been involved in youth group, I thought, well, by golly, I'll go into Christian education. That's what women did in the mid-70s. I remember going into the chapel on a wintry afternoon when a bunch of us knuckleheads from the religion department had bopped into the chapel and were just fooling around and I hop into the pulpit like I'm going to pretend to preach and my mouth rose and my feet held, felt hot and I got out of there. It was the first time I began to think that maybe God was calling me to ordained ministry. 
In other words, my call and claim never was a burning bush. It was more like Ron's gradual ascent into understanding and a realization that God might be able to use me as a witness. I denied it and struggled with it and accepted it and denied it and struggled and accepted it and I still do to this day. This faithfulness stuff, if we're honest, is hard. Perhaps most of us today will recognize our conversion as slow how we come to believe and trust in God can vary, can vary widely. What makes our scripture lesson so interesting this morning is that Paul is really the exception for many to the conversion experience. No one would have thought he would be it. He's been persecuting Christians all over Jerusalem. He's got Jerusalem just about cleaned up. And so he's headed now to, to Damascus with letters from the synagogue there that he can arrest those folks on the way. The way is made up of men and women who are faithful Jews who have come to believe in Jesus and they're corrupting the neighborhoods of Damascus. And so Paul's gone to get rid of them. Imagine his surprise when a light comes and strikes him to the ground and he can no longer see. Blind for three days, the followers walking with him must guide him by the hand. He can't eat, he can't sleep or drink. He is stunned. And at the same time, Ananias is getting a vision too. Only Ananias recognizes Jesus when he calls and says, Lord, what do you want? And he says, well, there's this guy named Saul. He's going to be on the street called straight at Judas's house. I want you to go there and lay your hands on him so he can see. Ananias objects. What do you mean? This guy has the authority to come and arrest us. You mean him? He's been persecuting Christians from day one. And Jesus says, nah, my call. You go put your hands on him so he can see because he's going to be my witness to kings and Gentiles everywhere. Just go do it. Ananias did as he was instructed. Paul is baptized in a hurry, has himself something to eat, and that day begins ministry. Very few conversions happen that way. Very few come to experience their faith in such a dramatic form. And yet, isn't Paul here for us this morning to help us understand that without his witness, without his letters to the church, 
where would the church be today? All of our witness is important. These six witnesses taped last week, beginning with Ron, have such an important message to share for us. In fact, one of the things he said that didn't make the cut was one of my favorites. So I'm going to tell you. There was that moment when he's talking about the uh, moment in college where you begin to question things. And Josh Howell said, well, what is it that made you stay? What is it that kept you connected? And Ron said, I never found anything better. Isn't that the truth that we seek this morning? I think particularly of those 17 children that are gone now. How is it that those families will find their way forward? I heard this week that this is the 18th shooting this year within a school setting. You know how news gets around and you kind of need to find out if it's accurate or not. So I went to a Washington Post article that said it really depends on how you, uh, what criteria you use to make those numbers. But it has done an analysis and discovered that 150,000 children in 177 primary and secondary schools have been impacted by gun violence since Columbine. That's a lot of babies. 91% of the children affected by gun violence under the age of 15 are in the United States. Can I have a witness, would we find anything better than our faith and our love of God and God's love of us? Why unbinding the heart? Why talk about sharing the gospel or beginning to get comfortable with sharing our faith with family and friends, being willing to pray for others who might be strangers? Because there is nothing more important for us to share. The problem we have with Paul's witness for us this morning is that it simply doesn't feel typical. And if we haven't had that kind of transforming experience, can it be true in our lives and in our hearts that God could use us? Flannery O'Connor once said of Paul, I reckon the Lord knew that the only way to make a Christian out of that one was to knock him off his horse. O'Connor rightly says, this is not the focus of the conversion story. We want to think it's all about Paul and what it took to get Paul turned around. But it's not. The focus of Paul's story is that God will call and change anyone whom God needs in order to deliver the message. Did you hear that? 
The main character in this story is not Saul. It's God. God who calls us and who needs us to bear witness. It's not about our worthiness. It's not about our readiness. It's not even about our preparedness. God calls ordinary people on a lifelong, even slow, sometimes bumpy journey. Whatever it takes, God is calling. I've heard it said that God is a nudge. Not the nagging, annoying kind of nudge, but the gentle, leaning on us nudge. Indeed, it's hard for us to get rid of the notion that somehow God would rather punish and blame us than use us. That we must measure up and express our disappointment and approval in who we are before God will turn us around and love us and use us. It's somehow in our hard wiring. But yet do we not also feel that longing within God's heart for us to come closer and to experience God as more spacious and oceanic, being able to step into the water? Don't we feel God's desire to dwell in us? A poet by the name of Habez says this, every child has known God, not the God of names, not the God of don't, not the God who ever does anything weird, but the God who only knows four words. And he keeps repeating them saying, come dance with me. Come dance. That's the message, no matter how it arrives, when it arrives, or under what circumstance it arrives. Come and dance with God, who would be in you and impact the world for the better. You see, the real climax of this story is not Paul's conversion. It's not his change from persecutor to witness or from Judaism to Christianity. It's that our experience of transformation is never a private affair. Look at how that happens to Paul. There's a whole entourage traveling with him, an entourage that hears the voice and doesn't see. I think he cried too. They're the people who took him by the hand and led him into Damascus. They're the folks at Judas's house and there's Ananias and all of those people coming together to make this experience what it was. It wasn't about Saul, it was about God's orchestration so that Saul could become an instrument. He was not the plan. The plan, my friends, 
is for us in the experience of God to create community and health and wholeness and to spread it into the world so that no one feels alone and that everyone has belonging. I told you on last Wednesday that I was reading a new book by Father Gregory Boyle. In it, he tells the story of one of their uh, employment uh, enterprises. It's called Homegirl Cafe. In Homegirl Cafe, uh, they have women, girls, who have been incarcerated, formerly in gangs. There's one woman there by the name of Blenna, big woman, who is quite tattooed, and she's been in a gang. She's been in prison as a felon. Now she's out on parole. She's a waitress. Well, on this particular homegirl day, wouldn't you know, Diane Keaton walks in. Apparently, the Dodgers came in for lunch one day. Jim Carrey's been there. Joe Biden came in with his motorcade. They were so excited when Father Boyle got there. They said Mitt Romney had been there. Catch that? They didn't know who he was. They just knew he was important and somehow he was the vice president. So when Diane Keaton comes in, Glenda does not know who she is. Shows her to her table and Diane says to her, what would you recommend? What, what do you like? And she rattles off three dishes. She says, well, I'll take this one. Glenda turns around and then recognition dawns on her. And she turns back around and says, I know you. I, I know you. Diane Keaton says, well, I've got one of those faces, you know. She tries to deflect it and keep things moving. And she goes, no, no, I know you. We did time together. <laughs> they said there were no more Diane Keaton sightings. <laughs> but does it not point to the great desire of God's heart, of God's mission, of the reason for our conversion so that you and I look at each other and know that we know each other. We're one in this boat, one in our need for love, one in our need for recognition, one in our need for healing, and in our desire for hope and community. I just want you to know you've got no excuse. None. Saul didn't have one, nor do you or I. There's no record, my friends, that Saul was prepared or that you and I will ever be adequate to the task as we think we should be. Paul, Saul gets blind, three days later sees, realizes what happened, gets himself baptized in a hurry, eats something to regain his strength, and he begins ministry that day. There is no indication that he had time for seminary or that he was together with a bunch of folks to talk about what Jesus had done up to that point. 
All we know is that he spent a couple of years with Barnabas in the church at Antioch with a large company of people honing his witness. God told him to wade in the water. He was going to trouble the water. And you and I are the beneficiaries of that transformation. Let me tell you, my friends, the Lord is in so need of a witness today of those who will share and care and work for the good of the kingdom. I want you to notice in closing two last words. When the story begins, an important word is still. Understand that the resurrection of Christ has come, but Saul and the powers of evil are still at work and effective. Oh my, that has not changed today. We've got to address it because there is nothing better. The second word comes in verse 3. He says, and then it happens. That God can and does work within us to make a difference in the world. It happened in Paul. It happens in us. I too have never ever found anything better than God to lead the way. You and I, I'm just saying, we are exactly what God wants, what God needs. We are exactly who God calls, exactly who God can use. So try. Open your heart. Unbind it. And let God use you in new ways. Let's pray. Bless the Lord all of us as we struggle to understand your call and claim upon our hearts our need to feel forgiven so that we can even begin to feel worthy set us free unbind us let our hearts go with the fullness of your love and your grace for the healing of this world. Amen.